Well, the privilege is definitely mine. Thank you so much for, for having me here. Uh, I absolutely love this church. I love your pastors and your leaders and your ministries. And anyway, just so happy to be here. You guys are like-minded. We share in Christ's life. That's what fellowship is. We, we share in his life together. We have the same source of life and joy and hope, you know. And without, uh, this is the cool thing about coming to another church, because Christ is our Lord and we share a devotion to his word, um, I'm closer to you, even though I don't know you, I'm closer to you than to members of my own family who are not loyal to Christ. And I know more about you because of what you value uh, just because I know that you're a believer, right? So we're brothers, we're sisters, and we share in that. And what a cool thing. So, of course, greetings from Grace Church. And Grace, Grace Church uh, just is so... We, we just love you guys over there and so thankful and really want to just do anything we can to, to be a part of partnering in the gospel with you all. So thank you for having us. Um, we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 5, and, uh, and as you turn there, um, it's just going to be an overview of the Beatitudes, um, and I just want to bring this to your attention. I've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm just struck by Jesus' words. They're so powerful. They're so efficient, and they accomplish so many things at once. And it's not always easy to understand what he's getting at. Um, But we're going to read this. We're going to dive into it. And again, just as you read this, come at it with a a fresh set of eyes, kind of questions in your mind. Who is this for? What is he writing this? Who is he writing this to? What does he mean by these things? And uh, we'll dive in, and I'll try to squeeze everything in and 40, 45 minutes or so, okay? And which probably means you'll get out of here about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So Um, let's go ahead and start reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your, your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into this, okay? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for preserving this for us, that we might know you, that we might know your promises, might know what you want from us, might see what you have accomplished for us on our, on, on our behalf, Lord. You've accomplished everything. Thank you for revealing what you've called us to for showing us that the way is through Jesus Christ alone. And so, Lord, I pray that today that your word would penetrate our hearts, Lord, and 
and that you would use it, Lord, that though it's a different preacher today, it's the same Savior, the same Spirit, the same Lord. These words come from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would, within us, ignite a hunger, a thirst to know you and to follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, as we approach this Sermon on the Mount, as I said, it's a little bit difficult to track what he's doing, what he's saying here. And so um, I like to kind of illustrate it in this way. Uh, I once watched a, a, a painter on a, I think it was, uh, what was it? Uh, it's a American, what's the, what's the talent show? Um, America's Got Talent, right? And there's this one painter who starts painting on this black canvas, this huge black canvas, and she's got like three minutes to basically impress the judges, right? So she goes about painting this canvas with chalk and different kinds of paint, and she's going on this canvas, just going to town on it. But what starts to show up is this really simplistic picture of one of the judges, right? Glasses, mustache, little suit and tie. I mean, you, you know, you guys could probably paint it. I mean, it's really, it wasn't impressive. It was really simple. And so one by one, the judges kind of push their little red button saying, this, okay, let's, let's be done with this. And then finally, after the last button was pushed, okay, basically saying, all right, stop it now, right? She kind of peeks over her shoulder, throws this handful of black dust against the canvas, shakes it, and then flips it over. And what is revealed is this incredibly intricate masterpiece painting of one of the other judges, right? It looked like one judge, but it actually was another judge that she was painting, and it was um, like a masterpiece. So people just went nuts. This was crazy. How did you paint this guy upside down and keep it hidden from us this whole time, right? Um, I think that's what's happening here with the Beatitudes. Jesus starts painting this picture kind of one brush stroke at a time, but you don't really know what he's painting yet until he flips it around at the end and says, Bam, here's what it is. And really what I think he's painting here is the portrait of a disciple. But what he starts painting is it makes it look like here are some things that you need to do to qualify for heaven. But instead, what he gets at is he flips it around. And he says, no, this is what a disciple looks like. This is, what, this is what someone who is already going to heaven, someone who already possesses the kingdom, the person that's already been qualified will show themselves in these ways. Okay, so he's painting the portrait of a disciple. So it's important to note here as well that Jesus is not speaking of different groups of people. He's not speaking of the poor in spirit as one group or those who mourn as another group and the peacemakers as a separate group. Okay, all the peacemakers are going to be rewarded in this way. All the poor in spirit are going to be this way. He's not saying that. This is a portrait, a picture of one kind of person. These are characteristics of Jesus' disciples. And I want to show you this from, from this passage to show you that this is a united one, this is a unit, right? The Beatitudes are one unit of thought. Um, there's five different sort of structural elements to this passage that kind of reveal that. The first is repetition. You see it in there. This is the most obvious. He says, blessed, like a bunch of times, over and over, for they shall, you know, insert whatever reward he gives, gives there, okay? Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for they shall 
Um, for theirs is the kingdom, right? And all these different kinds of things. So there's repetition. Then there's what you call alliteration. That's where it, start, there's, it starts with the same letter. So the first four Beatitudes all start with the same Greek letter, the letter pi. And what's the, the significance of that? Nothing specifically other than this is very purposefully structured, okay? It was on purpose that he did this to show that there's a unit here. Um, then what you have is this thing called an inclusio. An inclusio is where you start a section with a certain phrase, and then you end that section with the same exact phrase, and it sort of brackets that section. He kind of basically says, all right, this is, this is meant to be a unit. And this inclusio is there in verse 3 and in verse 10. At the end of verse 3, it's the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the phrase, right? for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that same phrase is repeated exactly in verse 10 for those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he brackets this off, and he said, and that, that's the only two that are, that are phrased that way in that whole section. And he's basically saying this is the one, this is the, the type of person that the kingdom of heaven belongs to, and then there's all of these little intricate details in between that describe this person. And then in verse 4, you see a shift. It shifts from the third person to the second person. It shifts from Jesus saying they to now he says you. You can see the shift taking place in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse uh, 11. Blessed are those, let me see, verse 10 actually, those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. You see it right there in verse 10. He's speaking of them in the third person. He then shifts in verse 11 to blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. See that? So he's been saying blessed are they, blessed are those, blessed are them, right? For theirs is, for they shall. Now he shifts. He's been painting this portrait. Boom. Now he shifts to and he says blessed are you. So you see that, that first set, 3 through 10, that's like the, the portrait. And now he's saying this is you if you're a disciple, right? Blessed are you. And then the next sort of observation about, this, about the structure here is he, there's an expansion on the idea of persecution in, in verse 11 and 12. Expansion, right? So you've got, you've got repetition, you've got alliteration, you've got an inclusio, then you have the shift to the second person, and then an expansion on the idea in verses 11 and 12. And what that's really showing is that Whatever Jesus is getting at in verses 3 through 10, verses 11 and 12 really expand and, and, and emphasize what he's really getting at, verses 11 and 12. All right, so we'll get into that in a little bit more detail as we go through it. So as we can see from this structure, it's meant to be taken as a unit. It's speaking of one kind of person, the one kind of person who is blessed, not several different categories of people. And this one type of person who is blessed is a disciple of Jesus. And we'll show that, we'll prove that here in a little bit. But just trust me on this. This is what a disciple is. A disciple of Jesus is the one who is blessed with eternal reward. It's important to note this because as you look at the characteristics here, Disciples are not the only ones in the world who are poor in spirit. You know, Jesus' Christians aren't the only people who are poor in spirit. But they are the only ones who are rewarded with 
the kingdom. There are lots of people out there who feel lowly about themselves. Okay, there are lots of people out there who mourn, but they're not Christians, and they won't be, inherit, they won't be inheriting the kingdom. There are lots of people who are merciful. There's lots of people who have a certain hunger and thirst for righteousness. They just don't go about obtaining it through Christ. So not everyone who is poor in spirit, not everyone who is humble, not everyone who is gentle, not everyone who is merciful enters the kingdom of heaven. These are not requirements. This is not a checklist to enter the kingdom. These are, these are descriptions of those who already have been saved. These are what Jesus' followers ought to look like and what they will look like in increasing measure over time. There are persecuted people who are persecuted for doing the right thing, but they're not Christians. So, we know from the rest of Scripture as well that you cannot earn your salvation. You don't, it's by grace through faith that you're saved. You cannot earn it through doing good works and by matching this checklist. You cannot earn salvation by being gentle and mourning, by, by hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You cannot earn it by being pure in heart. No, these are descriptions of the true disciples. So, as we work through this, it's important to note that Jesus is painting the portrait of a disciple. So, as we dive into this, just another quick point of, of context here. Jesus has been preaching the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. He's been saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And he's saying the kingdom is coming near. You have the opportunity to enter the kingdom now. And then he starts saying, he starts healing all of these people. And it says that he just walked through all of Galilee, people bringing to him everyone, every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, demon possession, all of this stuff. Jesus healed every single person that they brought to him. Okay? Now listen, this is in sharp contrast with modern faith healers who will only heal you uh, of invisible illnesses uh, like headaches and backaches and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And then they, uh, it doesn't stick because the person didn't have enough faith. That's not the type of healing that you see from Jesus. You don't see a bunch of fanfare. You don't see him acting like a wizard and making all these incantations and drumming up you know, the music and getting everyone just frothing at the mouth. And then everyone feels like they got healed through some massive psychological game. Jesus, matter-of-factly, walks through. Each person comes to him you're healed, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. It's just constantly, all the time. Someone just touched the hem of his garment, he'd be healed. And he didn't, be, he didn't go, well, look at that. Did you see they were healed? You want a healing too? You know, that's not what he does. That's, not, that's, that's garbage, bogus stuff out there that's going on, right? True healing is matter of fact, done by the power of God. Obvious illness, and there's no residual effects, there's no need for a second blessing, and you just need a little bit more of the Holy Spirit to heal your left leg now, right? No, it's just like, boom, there it is. It's done. Okay, side note. So people then, knowing this, seeing this, come from all over the place, these crowds of people coming to Jesus and, and wanting healing, of course, but then he's teaching them the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So now he goes up on the mountain, and there's a reason why he would go up, is the crowds are pressing in. He needs to get up to a place where he can speak to them, 
and also so that those who are there for the teaching will actually come to hear the teaching, right? His disciples come to him, it says. So you have all these, you have all these crowds of people who want to be his disciples now. These are would-be disciples, and so they've showed up for what you might call the orientation meeting, right? You want to be a disciple, this is kind of what it means. This is what you can expect. This is an orientation meeting for the disciples, and so he paints this portrait of what a disciple is. So what is it that a disciple looks like? Let's start with this. Number one, disciples are lowly like Jesus. Disciples are lowly like Jesus. These are the characteristics in the Beatitudes. They are poor in spirit. That means that they know they have nothing to offer God, nothing good within themselves to bring to the table. It says they mourn. They mourn for their own sin. They mourn for their own lack of righteousness. That's part of it. And there's so much more that we could get into. I'm going to be preaching on this through the whole year, so I won't cover all of the intricacies of this. But the poor in spirit, they mourn, they're meek. That means they're, they're gentle, they're humble. They hunger and thirst. Someone who hungers and thirsts is someone who is not filled yet. They don't already believe that they have righteousness or that things are fine the way that they are. Disciples are not satisfied with this world. We are content with God's plan, with his goodness, with his direction, with his sovereignty in our life, but we are not satisfied with the awful state of the world or of our own hearts. Disciples are merciful, peacemaking, and were persecuted. All of these characteristics point to this general posture of lowliness and humility. Disciples are lowly. As Jesus says in Matthew 23, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. True disciples of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, then what that will look like, the most obvious characteristic in your life will be lowliness, not arrogance. Arrogance has no place among Jesus' disciples. And there's so many reasons why we are lowly. We are lowly because we recognize our own sinfulness. And what, it, what that means, when you confess your own sinfulness, it's not, well, yeah, I made some mistakes, or yeah, I'm not perfect. It's, I am so wicked, the things that I have done are so bad that I deserve eternal judgment and separation from God in isolated confinement and, and torture forever. That's how evil I am. That is the true recognition of my sinfulness. A person who recognizes that is lowly, right? That kind of person will be merciful to others and gentle because they recognize, I'm not, I'm not more deserving of God's goodness than you are. We are lowly because... We recognize out of everyone in the world, we are very unimportant and unimpressive. First Corinthians talks about this. God chose the lowly. God chose those things that were not noble. God chose the, the foolish things of the world, the base, in order to shame those that thought that they were something. That's what First Corinthians says. We are lowly because we... we on the, in the grand scheme of things, we are not impressive. We are lowly because we don't see righteousness in ourselves, but we do long for it. 
We are lowly because the world hates us. We are lowly because they think we're idiots. They think we're foolish. We are humble. We, we, we don't walk into a building, you know, thumping our chest and, you know, looking down on everybody else because, we're, like, we are the lowly ones, right? They're, we are not impressive. We are lowly because we don't seek to be superior to others and we're not in competition with them. In fact, we are cool with laying down our own lives, with lowering ourselves so that Christ might be exalted. Christians are not cool. Our personality and priorities are not attractive to the world, right? And, and there's, it's so, it is, one of the most bizarre things is Christians trying to act cool, right? And how just goofy that is, right? Guys, we, we need to understand we are not cool and we need to embrace that. We are lowly. Because we don't feel the world owes us anything. That's part of the problem with the whole social justice movement thing is this idea that the world owes me. No, that's not a Christian attitude. The world does not owe me anything. We are lowly, and therefore we don't hold grudges. We are lowly just as Jesus was lowly. Our master, king of heaven and earth, Lowered himself to be born in a manger, a feed trough for animals. He was raised in obscurity. He was rejected by his people. He was obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most inhumane and embarrassing form of death. Hung naked on a cross in a public place, falsely accused. That was, that was our Lord. Are we above our master? No, we're not. And Jesus even describes himself in this way. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you, who, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your, soul, your souls. Jesus himself is lowly. If you, if you want to be his disciple, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. If you want to follow him, you will lower yourself like he did. That will transform your relationships, I'll tell you that. So, disciples are lowly like Jesus. Number two, disciples are rewarded by Jesus. Okay, this is the next brushstroke on this portrait of a disciple. Disciples are rewarded by Jesus. You see there the, the different rewards. The kingdom of heaven is what they are given. The kingdom of heaven, just for the sake of summary, God's been building this kingdom from Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, he promised that God, he would deal with the issue of sin. He promised, he made his promises known through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through King David, he promised that there would be a son to sit on the throne. That, that son, that eternal son to sit on David's throne would be Jesus, and he would rule the whole world forever. There would be no end to his reign. He would, all of the enemies would be wiped out. There would be no more sin, suffering, death. There would be no more weeds in the garden right? That is that eternal kingdom. It's coming in the future. He will come and set that thing up. Right now, he is gathering the inhabitants of that kingdom. He is transferring dead lost sinners from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He is gathering the inhabitants for the wedding feast, right? The, the, the attendees. And so right now, we, our spot as believers is reserved in that kingdom, but we haven't take full possession of it yet. 
We don't see it yet. We haven't, it's by faith that we see the kingdom of heaven at this point. But that is the kingdom. It's been promised to us. And look further down with more detail of what's been promised to Jesus' disciples. We will inherit the earth. We will be satisfied with righteousness. We will receive mercy. Mercy meaning compassion. Or for, rather than receiving the hell that we deserve, we receive his mercy, his, his grace. And for the coming ages, it says in Ephesians, he is going to lavish on us the riches of his grace. Lavish, right? God's not stingy with it. Age upon age upon age, he's going to reward you with the riches of his kindness. There's, there's nothing better than that. It says that we will there, we'll see God. We don't see him right now, but then we will. We'll see him face to face. Can you imagine that? You, dirty, rotten sinner, deserving of his judgment, get to see God and be called his son or daughter. And he says, rejoice, because your reward is great. So disciples are rewarded by Jesus. Though we are lowly and we recognize that we don't deserve it, he rewards us, and disciples of Jesus seek his reward, right? Not the rewards of this world. We don't seek the Oscars and the Grammys and, and uh, you know, whatever may be offered to us in this world. Look at Matthew 6, 24. By contrast, Jesus says this, When you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, disciples of Jesus don't seek the praise of men. They don't do their good deeds in order to be noticed by men so that they'll be praised and lifted up by people. They seek God's praise. They seek God to acknowledge what they're doing. They want God to be pleased. That's who they are living for, his reward, not so that you can be praised and honored by people. If, that, if, if your desire, if, what, if your motivation in what you do is to do good things so that other people will acknowledge you, that is all the reward you're going to get. You have it in full. That's what he's saying here. True disciples don't seek that reward, though they might be tempted at times, okay? I'm not saying you're never tempted. But the direction of your life, the, the overall control of your life is that you recognize one day you will stand before him and you want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You want him to reward you. And so you're going to do everything you do, base everything you do around that. And what's amazing about God's graciousness is that he will reward even the smallest act of kindness and faithfulness on his behalf. Listen to Matthew 10, 42. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So you deserve hell, but you give a cup of cold water to a little one, and God says, I'm going to reward you for that. The smallest act of faithfulness. His grace is amazing. Faith in Jesus then involves the trust that he will reward us. See, it's not just an altruistic thing. I'm just going to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do, right? That is good, but that's only partially part of our motivation. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, 
and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. You come to God because you believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. That reward is part of our motivation and it is actually basic to our faith. His reward motivates and empowers us to serve and do the right thing even under oppressive circumstances. In Colossians 3, uh, verse 23 through 24, it's talking about um, talking to slaves at that time. And this is what Paul says to the slaves. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do your work heartily with effort and enthusiasm as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You're not serving your boss. You're not serving your husband. You're not serving your tyrannical children. You're not serving, your, you're not serving masters and all this kind of stuff. You serve the Lord. And he will reward. He even lists this as a motivation for our endurance in Revelation 22. Verse 12, Jesus says this right at the end. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So disciples are lowly like Jesus, and they are rewarded by Jesus. Number three, disciples suffer for Jesus. You can expect this. Now, this is, this is quite an interesting thing to think about. Is here, Jesus is healing all these people, doing these amazing things. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. And his first message to those who have decided to follow him is basically, blessed are you who have been persecuted. I mean, can you imagine? These people haven't been persecuted for this yet, right? Blessed are you who are persecuted. Wait, aren't you the king? Aren't you supposed to be conquering, kicking out Rome, and you're eliminating disease? And What do you mean persecuted? What are you talking about? He says, blessed are you when you are persecuted. Jesus, this, Jesus is essentially setting the tone here, saying that if you want to be my disciple, you are going to suffer, and you're going to suffer for being my disciple. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the, is the kingdom of heaven. He expands on this in verses 11 and 12. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you've got people insulting. People will insult you for being his disciple. They will persecute you. It means to hunt. They will falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I mean, stop and think about that. That's a real gut check, isn't it? People insulting you for this. People persecuting, slandering you just because of this. In Luke chapter 6, it's his version of the same sermon and by the way, just by comparison, when the biblical writers recorded these, they didn't record every single thing that Jesus said. So you have some overlap and you have some variation. So Jesus said these things, and sometimes, sometimes there was direct quotes, and sometimes they give the sense of what he was saying. And so, so in Luke chapter 6, he, you can fill out a little bit of what Jesus says. In Luke 6, 22, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you, that means 
you know, carve you out and push you away from society, shun you, okay? When they ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy because your reward in heaven is great. So this is what Jesus is saying that you can expect. You come to follow me, this is what you can expect. Ostracism, hatred, insult, persecution. And this came to be true. In fact, when Matthew wrote his gospel in, in the, probably the 50s AD, this persecution was in full force. Many, some of the apostles had already been killed. They had been forced out of Jerusalem. They were, the people were fleeing for their lives. The apostle Paul was one of the people that was guilty of that before God graciously called him to himself. He was a major persecutor of the church. And when you go through stuff like that, I mean, it, it's, again, it's a real gut check. Man, do I want to continue with this? Is this worth it? And this sense of, of being ostracized by the world, being put out, being made to look foolish and stupid, and the pain and the, the tension in relationships, this is what causes people to compromise probably just about more than anything other than the temptations for you know, lust and pleasure and power and money and all that. But the, the, the interpersonal challenges that we face... Man, it makes you want to be like, man, I want to quit. What's this, what's this all about? What's this for? Jesus is saying, this is normal. He's saying, this is what you can expect as my disciple. Disciples suffer for Jesus. Don't, don't be confused when stuff gets bad. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong when people are offended at you. In fact, uh, there's a place where Jesus says to John the Baptist, John, John the Baptist says, um, you know, are you the Christ should, or should we expect someone else? And he says, well, you know, tell John, you know, the, the lame walk, the blind see, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense to me. Jesus is inherently offensive to sinners who are unwilling to yield to his lordship. So, disciples, disciples are lowly, like Jesus. Disciples are rewarded by Jesus. Disciples suffer for Jesus. And disciples are loyal to Jesus. And this is, this is the key phrase of the whole thing, right? Verse 11, this phrase, because of me. See, that's, that's it. That's because of me. He's, this is where he marks it off. This is what this is about. This is about being a disciple of Jesus. And this is, you could really say, for a disciple, this is the theme of your life, because of Jesus. You could, put a, you could put the banner up here, because of Jesus, right? This is our why. This is our reason for everything. Jesus is not just the reason for the season. He is the reason, period, right? He's the reason. He's the reason that we continue. He is our loyalty to him. Come what may, come persecution, toil, famine, death, whatever it is, because of Jesus we will persevere. It is for his sake. It is his reward. And those that remain loyal to Christ are the ones who inherit the kingdom. True disciples are loyal to Christ no matter what the cost. Jesus says this, that in times of testing, there are many who fall away. In times of trials and temptation, many don't pass the test. But true disciples remain loyal no matter what. 
True disciples are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Their lives are lived in such a way that they represent him, that they showcase Christ, right? And for that, we will be insulted, slandered, and persecuted. And yet, because of our loyalty to Christ, we will not return evil for evil. We will not return insult for insult. Because we are loyal to him, we want his name to be exalted. So we're not fighting for our own name. We're not fighting for our own rights. We're not fighting for our own kingdoms. We are fighting that Christ may be lifted up. True disciples recognize that the reward is in heaven. And so we're patient here. We can endure suffering here. We won't demand those rights. We won't stand up for ourselves unless it's for the sake of Christ's mission. And yet, at the same time, we gladly stand up for the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed. So, this is the thing. Jesus is calling you to follow him, not just to be a good person. This is super important to recognize, right? See, see Jesus, the, the key, this is the key thing in, in it all. This is the linchpin, is loyalty to Christ. So it's not like... Jesus is, is just one path to make you a good person, and, um, but the, really, the point is that you're just a nice person. I saw a quote from The View, right, this, that show on TV. There's this lady supposedly representing Christians, and she, she said that, G, that being a Christian is just being a good person. And essentially, if you're a good person, well, well great, you know, blessings on you. No, that's, that's not the case. It's all about loyalty to Christ, Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32. Matthew 10, 32. He says, therefore, this is, in, this is intense right here. He says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Okay, good so far. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. True disciples who recognize this is the Lord of glory, that all, all righteousness is found in him, that he is my only hope of eternal salvation, that he alone is a standard of righteousness and goodness in the world, right? And, and that the world owes its loyalty and allegiance to Christ. will be willing to follow him, even if it puts them at odds with their own family even if it puts them at odds with their own community, even if it puts them at odds with their own government. See, this is, this is the thing. We do not pledge allegiance to America. Our allegiance is not to America. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is not to a political system. Our allegiance is not to uh, a philosophy or an ideology. Our allegiance is to Christ. We Listen, our allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, which will outlast and overcome every single other one in the history of the world. It will be the only thing left standing. When this place burns down, 
because it'll be burned down by Jesus Christ himself. And the church, his disciples, will be like these redwood trees during these wildfires, the only thing left. And we will, we will be there with him in glory forever. And so we have nothing to worry about here, right? Our allegiance is to him, and our loyalty is to him, and he demands that loyalty over, over everything else. True disciples are loyal to Jesus. And then lastly, number five, disciples represent Jesus. Look at what it says in Matthew 5, 12. Matthew 5, 12. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus here, this is, notice this. Jesus right here is equating his disciples with the prophets of the Old Testament. Like Moses, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and others like that, right? And I don't, I don't mean in this way. I don't mean that you're going to be predicting the future and doing miracles. The primary role of the prophet was not primarily future predictions. It was to proclaim the word of God. It was to call people into obedience to that word, to lay aside their idolatry and their sins, and to follow God alone, right? To worship, obey, and serve God alone. That was the role of the prophet. God said, you shall tell them, thus says the Lord. That's really what it is. Thus says the Lord. And you, as a disciple of Christ, you don't do anything other than that. His word has been revealed to us. Here it is. It's in all of its glory and its fullness. It's sufficient. It's complete. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Our job is to represent his will in this world. That's our job. That's why they're ostracized, right? We're not ostracized for being good people. We're ostracized for represent the Lord of glory in an in enemy territory. Okay? We are like ambassadors. We're like the kingdom of heaven is coming, right? Your opportunity, we're, we're going through these communities saying that the kingdom of heaven is coming. You have the opportunity to enter this kingdom now. Now's the day of salvation. But if you resist, remember when that shows up, if you resist and that kingdom shows up, it will show up as your enemy. As your, God will be your enemy on that day. And you don't want that. You don't want him as your judge. You want him as your savior and your advocate, right? And so we are, we are like ambassadors going ahead. It's like in the ancient world, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's coming through, he's conquering the land. He sends envoys out in front of him saying, all right, surrender now and you'll be shown mercy, okay? I, I'm telling you, that's what this is. In fact, if you look at, at <laughs> Paul, when he goes and preaches the gospel, he goes and he goes into uh, you know, the Areopagus in Athens. And what is his message to them? He says, all right, guys, you all worship this God that you don't know. I'm, I'm here making known to you who, who that God is. And he's saying now, basically, it's, it's this. He is going to judge the world by this man whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. Right? And so he has overlooked times of ignorance, but now is calling all men, all men everywhere to repent. That's his message to these people he's never met before. That's why he gets insulted and beaten up, right? And that's why we don't. It's because we don't do that. 
We tell people, Christians are cool, he'll make your life better, and, uh, and, and I'll tell you as long as you don't make life hard for me. But if you're going to make life hard for me, I'm just I'm going to avoid that, right? I'm going to just go hang out with the people that agree with me. And I'm going to try to say only the things that don't offend people. We, as true believers in Christ, represent him in the world. He says this. Uh, th- think about this, okay? Back to the, back to the prophets. I've got to read this to you. Hebrews 11.36. This is what the prophets experienced. They experienced mocking, scourgings, chains, and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, which was not the fashionable uh, skins of the day, right? Sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, and holes in the ground. Those are our kinfolk. Those are our people. Those are the guys, and, and, and their mistreatment, when we are treated the same way that they are, we take that as a badge of, of honor, Because just like they were mistreated for representing Christ, so are we. Matthew 5, back back to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 13, just after in the same context, he goes on and he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? The point of salt is that you taste it. That's what he's saying there. You can get into all these details of what salt was for. It was purification. It was you know, uh, preservation, whatever. But he said his main point here is salt's taste. When salt is present in a recipe, you can taste it, right? If you can't taste it, there's no reason to put it in there, right? Salt's purpose is to be salty. Your purpose is to, it should make a difference, your presence in the world, your presence in the life of other people. They should be able to taste Christ-likeness, says, you are the light of the world, he says. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does, a, does anyone light a lamp and put it under, under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine in such a way that when people see your good works, they will glorify your God who's in heaven. So we're not to do our works in order to be noticed by men so that we're praised by them. We're to do our good works, and we're not to hide. We're not to hide the good works. We're not to hide the truth. We're to let it shine in such a way so that it glorifies God, not us. In, nine, in chapter 937, Jesus says to his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Beseech the Lord to send out workers. In Matthew 28, he then commissions them. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He then empowers them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. See, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into your life, transforms your heart so that you'll believe in Jesus Christ, gives you a new heart that wants to follow him and begins to grow in his likeness and then empowers you to be his witnesses. It's not primarily power to flop on the floor and speak in incoherent babblings. It's to be a witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's That's what he gave that to you. And you, Christian, have the Holy Spirit. And it's not just for the sake of your own enjoyment. It's to empower you to represent Christ faithfully and effectively in the world. I'm always with you, he says. 
through the Holy Spirit. All right. Am I wearing you out yet? All right, here we go. Matthew 10, starting in verse 5. Okay, I want to show you this because we've seen disciples are lowly. They're rewarded by Jesus. They, they, um, they suffer for Jesus. They're loyal to Jesus. They represent Jesus. Now, with all of that kind of in mind, I want to show you two passages, and they're longer passages, but I want you to have that in your mind as you hear what Jesus says to him here. He sends out the 12 in verse 5 of Matthew 10, and he says this, Do not go to the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received and freely give. Okay? He's speaking to his apostles, by the way. This, this, the, the foundation of our faith was built on them, their preaching and their teaching, and he validated their teaching with healing and raising the dead and cleansing lepers and casting out demons, right? Do we do that today? Uh, I, would argue, I would argue no. God can do it, but we, we don't go around casting out demons and all that kind of stuff. That was the apostles, not to be controversial. Verse 9. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, verse 10, or, bag for your, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the workers worthy of his support, okay? And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay in that house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it a blessing of peace. But if, not, if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. It is not what you speak, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved." But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he become like his teacher, and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, Beelzebul, which is Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And we'll stop on that one because I think I already read this part of the verse. Verse 38, he says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
And he who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. There's a lot going on there. I just I want you to hear, though, in rapid succession, Jesus' call to his disciples. You represent me in the world. Don't, don't be about acquiring possessions and making that the point of your life. Go and, and do, for the sake of the expediency of the gospel, orient your entire life around getting this message out there and trust me that I'm going to take care of you and just expect that things are going to be difficult, right? That's what a disciple does, okay? And I would recommend to you, I don't want to overwhelm you, but Acts 4, 8, 8 through 31 the disciples had just preached the gospel. Peter and John, they'd been brought before the Sanhedrin, told, don't be preaching in this name. They said, we have to do what God tells us to do. And then they let them go. And I love this. I want, I want you to turn here really quick. We'll, do, we'll end on these two verses. Acts 4. And I want you, we'll start at uh, verse 29. So, Jesus had been crucified just a few weeks before, and now Peter is preaching the gospel. People are getting saved in droves, and now the people that had Jesus crucified are now dragging him to be questioned. And here he goes, and he preaches the gospel to them. They threaten them and say, don't do this again, and let them go. And this is the prayer of the church. And we're going to pick it up in the middle of the prayer in verse 28. Verse 29, this is their prayer. And now, Lord, take, take note of their threats, Lord. And grant, is it safety that they ask for? Grant that your servants be safe. He says, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's a disciple. A disciple of Jesus is lowly, recognizes that they are rewarded by Jesus, they're willing to suffer for Jesus. They are loyal to Jesus above everything else, and they represent him no matter the opposition. What about you? If I hold this portrait up and I put your portrait up next to it, how similar is it? Where do you need to repent? Where does, where, where does your faith need to increase? Or maybe you need to get saved. Is Christ that valuable to you? That it's worth losing everything for? That you would be a faithful disciple of his? I'll tell you what, as, as we go forward into the coming years, with everything, the way that things are going and the way that kids are being trained up in the school system, businesses are going, all this kind of stuff, we're going to suffer for this message soon and grace napa and calvary are going to need to stand firm and strong and we're going to need to help each other with that 
we're going to need to love each other. We're going to need to strengthen each other for what's coming ahead. But it'll be worth it because he will reward us richly. So I need to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this portrait of a disciple. Lord, it cuts right to our heart. It goes beyond just doctrine, Lord. It goes to the desires of our own heart and flesh, the loyalty of it. That, Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are the promised one, the anointed one who is to come. And your kingdom will last forever. And you've called us into that kingdom. But you've called us to follow you through difficulty that we might faithfully represent you to this world. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be like you and to be faithful to you. May we be lowly. May we seek your reward. May we be willing to suffer. May we be loyal to you. And may we represent you well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.